This semester we're looking at the Gospel of John, and we're looking at different encounters that Jesus has with, with people in that Gospel. And there is, this is kind of, there's no screening this. These conversations and these interactions are real, um, and they are real kind of on both levels. They actually happened, but they are also real in that we just get an, an unfiltered look at Jesus talking to real people like you and me about the real stuff of their life. And tonight is another one of those. John chapter 5, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 18, and then we'll look at it together. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for uh, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, thereby making himself equal with God. This is God's word. When the popularity of cigarettes was on the rise in the U.S. back in the 40s and 50s, there was a whole stream of kind of hilarious, it's funny now, uh, hilarious propaganda and commercials that came out about cigarettes. And I don't know if you know this because the landscape has so drastically changed on this, but early on in those decades, people actually thought cigarettes were healthy for you. Um, Check this out. Each summer in the Tour de France which was this beastly bike ride through the country of France. And um, they would actually go smoke cigarettes before they went into the mountain stages, which are like the hardest, most brutal part of that whole race, because they thought that cigarettes helped your lungs. (laughs) Uh, There are also recordings of, um, of old Philip Morris. Philip Morris was kind of like big tobacco. We have big oil, you know, Chevron or Kerr McGee or Exxon Mobil, whoever. Um, uh, Philip Morris was like the biggest tobacco company in the world. And there were these old recordings of Philip Morris uh, where they would brag about how many cartons of cigarettes they donated to the VA hospitals. Like that was their Red Cross gesture. Like, look at us, we gave a million cartons of cigarettes to these veterans in the hospital. Um, there's another funny commercial, uh, a camel commercial, about 1949. It's on YouTube, you can find it. I'm just going to... I'm going to read part of it. And I'm going to try to talk 
like the guy on the commercial. So get ready for this. It's going to be awesome. You know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily rounds of calls, you'd find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with him. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. And because they know what a pleasure it is to smoke a mild, good-tasting cigarette, they are particular about the brand they choose. More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Why not change to camels for the next 30 days and see what a difference it makes in your smoking enjoyment? See how camels agree with your throat. See how mild and good-tasting a cigarette can be. Smoke camels. Not mentioned. Uh, Smoke them for 30 days, and you probably will smoke them the rest of your life. (laughs) And we will make billions and billions of dollars. Because that's how it worked back then. So it's, it's funny now, looking back on that. But we can see... And we know because of research and medicine and cancer and all that, that that cigarettes are terrible for you. Like really, really, really bad. And what's really interesting, kind of side note, is that those big tobacco companies, they knew that cigarettes were really bad way before the public knew that. And they suppressed this information and hid it. And they got huge fines slapped on them. And that's why if you... Let's be honest. The next pack of cigarettes you buy, uh, there's that huge warning on the side, the Surgeon General's warning, right? That was part of the fine and the settlements. They had to advertise how terrible they are for you. The thing about cigarettes, though, is that even with all the knowledge out there, people still smoke cigarettes. Even knowing that they're terrible for you and all this stuff, that your grandma died from them, they still smoke cigarettes. Why? Why do people love to do things that they know will kill them? Why do we do things that knowingly are ruining our life? There's a complexity about our lives and our desires. There's a complexity about the things that we choose to do and the things that we hold on to in our lives. In this passage, what we see is a man who is suffering, who has a very real suffering. And what I want us to see is that it's not simple. His suffering is not simple. It may look simple. It may appear simple. He's an invalid. He's been there for 38 years, but it is not simple. Um, Before I jump into that, let me just say that if you're here tonight and you're in the midst of some real suffering, and we all usually have some form of it, uh, please don't hear me minimize that in what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say, well, you just need to get through it, obviously. I'm not trying to make it simplistic. Suffering is not. Um, It's nuanced, and hopefully we get to some of that tonight first thing I want us to look at is the addiction of our suffering. The addiction of our suffering. Uh, We find the man in verse 2, or we find this pool in verse 2 in Jerusalem. Um, And ever so often, the water in this pool would inexplicably just start swirling around. Um, Scholars who kind of are aware of this stuff and who have studied it, um, they think maybe there was kind of an underground aquifer or something there, and that's how the water would start moving. Um, But... To be sure, there was an urban legend. There was this mythical thing that started being circulated about this pool. And it's that when those waters swirled, you would go in and you could be healed of whatever it is that ailed you. And so that's exactly what we see here. The blind and the lame and the sick, they are huddled around this pool waiting for the waters to swirl so they can get in and be healed. And that's just what this guy's doing in verse 5. He's been paralyzed for 38 years. Invalid for 38 years. That's older than I am. That is twice as old as you are. 
That is a long time to not walk, to not have use of your legs, to sit there. And Jesus comes up to this man in verse 6. Look at that right before you. Knowing that he's been there for a long time and he asks him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Honestly, it sounds like a tone-deaf and sensitive question, doesn't it? It sounds really tone-deaf, like Jesus is mocking him. Like, hey, I know you've been there for a long time. Do you want to be healed? Like, moves his eyebrows in a weird way. Um, Seems obvious. Of course he wants to be healed. That's why he's sitting there. But if you think about it, it's actually not that obvious. It's not that obvious, and that's precisely why Jesus asks it. Because if we would dare to be honest about this for a second, we kind of love our suffering. We kind of love our suffering. You might think that's the craziest thing I've said this semester. It might be. Who would love their suffering? Who would love the the thing or the things in their life that make their life kind of awful? Um, But think about it with me. Your suffering, your pain, whatever form this is taking in your life, it has a lot of hidden benefits to it. And I'm going to try to convince you that we actually love those benefits. So what are they? Uh, The first one of the benefits that comes in suffering is that we can be the worst, but kind of the best. So um, we all want to be the best. It feels good to be the best at suffering. Um, uh, It's something... um, I think it actually feels, too good, feels good to be the, the best, the worst at suffering, too. When you hear someone start telling you about how hard their, their, their week has been or how hard their life is, what is that thing inside of you that just instinctively wants to tell them how hard your week is or, like, how much harder your week is? Or, you know, they've got like, oh, I've got two tests and a paper. You're like, oh, that's hard. I've got three tests and two papers. And the other person over here is like, oh, that's really hard. I'm doing research and I've got seven papers. And like they just start making up stuff so that their life can be harder. We glory in that sort of, that sort of stuff. So, so who's busier? Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, really? What do you got going on? This and this and this. Oh, yeah, that's hard. I've got this and this and this and this. I'm so stressed. Oh, yeah, I'm really sorry. I'm the most stressed. I went to Alexander Health Center this week. I'm more stressed than you are. My anxiety triples yours. I'm more anxious. Like, that's the kind of world we live in. Um, we, We gloat in that. We love that. There's a power that comes with being the worst, best sufferer. Why else do we do it? Um, I actually think it's kind of tied into that first one that, that we love... That we love sympathy. We love sympathy. You may say that you hate sympathy, but you don't. Um, We want people's attention. We can call it that. We want people to have their eyes on you and looking at your stuff, feel sorry for you. Um, I I may actually be the worst one in this room uh, when it comes to this. I am like a sympathy black hole. If you catch me in the right day, I will make up a miserable story about my life. So that you can be like, oh man, kids, that's so hard. I, don't, I can't even imagine. I know you can't imagine. That's why I'm talking about my kids and how awful they are. Because like, it makes you feel sorry for me. I get your sympathy and that feels great. We love sympathy. 
This guy has been here for 38 years wallowing, understandably, in self-pity. We're going to come back to the interchange he has with Jesus when Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed. And this guy's response for just a second, but in just a second, but look at what he says right there. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He doesn't even answer Jesus. He just launches into his self-pity mode, to his pity party. And he's saying, oh my gosh, look at how awful my life is and all these things keep happening to me. And that's what our suffering does to us. It gives us an opportunity to throw a pity party and we send out invites to everybody. Come, tell me that, that you're praying for me. Tell me that you're, you're thinking about me. You're sending your thoughts my way, whatever that means. Um, just tell me something about me. I want you to be thinking about me because I love the attention. Here's the problem with that, though, is it's, it's really easy to manipulate people when you have their sympathy, when you have their self-pity, when people are feeling sorry for you. You can use that in a way that actually is really pretty ugly. You kind of put people in your debt. Oh, man, I'm sorry your life's really hard. Do you, do you need anything? Yeah, actually, I do. <laughs> I need lots of things. Come, give me things. You manipulate people. There's actually more. Cheer up. There's more. It gets worse. Um, we love the benefits of suffering because it justifies our anger. Um, you've done something to hurt me. I don't want to get well from that because my pain gives me justification to stay mad at you. So you pieced out on our friendship last year and you just kind of rode that out into the, into the sea and I'm over here, the one who's still sad that, that you're not my friend anymore. But I don't really want to forgive you because I like the feeling of being able to be mad at you. There's power that comes in that. And to have something you can hold, o- hold over other people that's so, so delicious, isn't it? It just, it just tastes so good. Hold that over to you. One more thing. I think this is actually a really scary one. We like our suffering, maybe even are addicted to our suffering, because it protects us from, from anyone ever actually confronting us. Here's how that works. If you're really sick, but let's say you're really sick. Let's say that, or let's say a friend of yours is really sick, and they're undergoing some massive treatment, whether chemo or whether dialysis or some other just very intensive thing. You are not, rightly so, in that moment. You're not going to like go there, in there and challenge them on their selfishness. That makes sense. But in all those other areas of our lives where we kind of create this mini narrative of ongoing suffering. Is it ever true of you that you you do that and you play that narrative out so that you kind of create this distance to where you kind of are telling people, yeah, my life's really hard right now, so please don't make it any harder. Like I've got all these circumstances going on and it's really brutal. And if you're a good friend, you would just give me your pity, but not your not your insight into my heart. And as long as we can create those narratives, and as long as we can kind of see all the advantages and the benefits of suffering, in our kind of in that kind of twisted way, we actually start to really enjoy, not enjoy, but you know, like an addiction. You may actually hate it, but you may not want to stop doing it. 
And suffering is insidious in that way, and it does that to us. We're like the doctor smoking cigarettes in that commercial. They love the very thing that was killing them. Um, we talked about anger, letting go of that. What about your judgmentalism? Um, it feels good to feel good about yourself, even if that makes others feel worse, and we really don't want to give that up. We're kind of addicted to that power. Um, do you want to be healed of other things in your life? Other addictions, maybe? Pornography addiction? Do you really want to honestly have to think what you're going to do late at night instead of doing that when you sever that from your life? What else are you going to do, like when you're bored or when you're tired? That's hard. It really It's a hard replacement. Is it worth it? And I, I say all of these things to make this one point. Jesus is not mocking this guy. He is asking him what I think is a very real, pertinent, heart question. Do you want to be healed? Maybe. But maybe not. Because I kind of like what my suffering gives me. It's weird. It's an addiction. But there's more going on in this passage. And the second thing, though, that we see about this is the, the deception of our suffering. Um, I want to look at this guy's response, as I mentioned. So look down at verse 7 right there. Uh, I, I mentioned that he doesn't even answer Jesus' question. He just says, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So here's the pity party. He's playing the victim. Okay, I'm, let's pause. Not minimizing his real suffering. But he is definitely playing the victim right here. Okay? Everyone goes in before me. No one wants to help me out. This is really, really hard. Okay, so what's the assumption behind his answer to Jesus' question? What's the assumption behind that statement? The assumption is, I know what I need to get better. I need to get in that magical pool right there, Jesus. If someone will just help me get in the water, then I'll be better. And friends, that's the thing. That's the whole deception of suffering. That this guy has suffered in such a way for so long that he has come to believe that the thing that he needs most is to get into those waters and have his body healed. That for him is everything. That defines his world. If I can just get my legs back, or if I can just get my legs in the first place, we don't know. Then my life will be great. And so when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? That guy just heard this. How can I help you get what you think you need? Let's go on a shopping spree. What do you want? And that's why he responded this way. He thought Jesus was asking him, can I make life easier for you? Jesus is a, is a big handyman who just shows up with his tool belt, like ready to fix stuff. One of the sad uh, realities of my life right now is that I'm, uh, I'm learning, very <laughs> sadly, I'm learning that I have anger issues. Um, I've, as I mentioned, I've got four kids who are eight and under, and breaking news, take notes of this if you're a note taker, uh, kids eight and under don't exactly always do the things you ask them to do, okay? Like, note to self, stick that away for later. Uh, Actually, that's not true. They never do exactly what you ask them to do. Like, ever. So, I may ask them something like, Hey, would you clean up the pile of Barbies or Legos or coloring books or magic markers or 
on and on and on and on. Would you do that? And instead, what they do is not that. They go put on these ridiculous, really cute cute princess outfits, and they play, and they're happy, and they're joyful, and they want me to play with them. Do Do they think I want to play with them? No! I want them to pick up! So you're laughing. I wish I laughed. I actually get mad at that stuff. It's like the saddest, funny thing ever. Brent, do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? Yes. Fix my kids. Make them obey. Like that would make my life better. Don't touch my heart though. Don't make me deal with all of my issues about needing everyone around me to do what I want them to do. Jesus, don't. No, no, no. That's not the deal here. My kids are the problem, not me. Don't touch my heart. We have things in our lives that hurt, that are frustrating, confusing. We all experience suffering in some point. What I'm trying to tell you is that we can be easily tricked into thinking that if my circumstances were better, then my life would be better. You're tricked into thinking that if I can, I can just think that God's main mission is to make my life more comfortable. So there's pain there from breakup. And you can just come to Jesus and say, I know what I need. Take me to that pool, Jesus. Make that guy like me again. Or make that girl like me again. Um, get us back together. Swirl the waters a little bit. Um, make the loneliness go away. Or if not that, provide me someone else pretty quick. But don't change me. Don't change my idolatry of romance, my possessiveness, my obsession with guys or girls. Don't don't go to that place in my heart that just needs someone to like me all the time. Don't do that. (laughs) Swirl the waters, but don't do that. I don't want to be healed. I just want to feel better. Or we say, Jesus, I don't want to be anxious about school anymore. I hate stress. I hate pressure. I hate the anxiety. Uh, If you could make those feelings go away, that'd be great. But let's just be clear about the terms of this. I actually still want to worship school. I want to worship my GPA. Don't touch that. Don't touch that, Jesus. Don't tell me that I don't need to make an A on that test. That's not the terms of this deal. Don't tell me that if I would actually take time off and rest from time to time that my anxiety would actually subside. Don't tell me that. I know what I need. I need better grades. Help me to remember everything I need to know for this test. Do not touch the idols in my heart. Hit delete on all the uncomfortable stuff, but don't go deeper. It's like Batman. How many of y'all saw the Batman Lego movie? Amazing. Uh, That was, our girls are in this thing where they want to have family movie nights all the time, which is, there could be worse things. So um, this summer they wanted to have a family movie night. It's so cute when they talk about it. Um, And they wanted to watch Batman Lego movie. And so we did. And I thought I was just going to have to tolerate this movie because that's what you do with kids, most kids' movies, at least the ones on Netflix that are terrible. Um, but we bought this one. We paid to rent it or whatever. And it's a, I mean, it is good, 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 really good. And um, there's something that comes out in that movie that I think is really insightful. There's this interplay that Batman doesn't really want to get rid of his arch nemesis, of his enemies. Because if he does, like if the Joker goes away, 
then Gotham won't need Batman anymore. And it's this existential crisis for Batman when he's like, what, what if I'm not needed? Who, who am I? If I lose that thing, who am I going to be? Suffering gives us a thing that we hold on to. It's deceiving. And we can, we can go to Jesus and, and ask Him to resolve all the drama of our lives or fix your family or get an A on the test or to have solid friendships or maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend. And He, honestly, He may look at you and say, I'm completely willing and able to do all of that. I can do them absolutely. But you need to actually understand that that's not going deep enough. That if I just fix the circumstances of your life, it's, just, it's not going deep enough. There's more to you than that. It's more complex. Your biggest problem is not the circumstances of your life. It's your heart. It is the underlying idolatries. It is the desire to be perfect. It is the worship of your grades. It is those deeper things. And the same is true for us. It's true for them. And that's what has to be healed. That's the third thing we're looking at tonight is the lesson of our suffering. Look down at verse 8. Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And instantly he's healed. I said, Jesus can do this stuff. And often he does. He's healed. Legs that have been atrophied for four decades are now able to bend and support weight. And this guy's life has been changed. Everything about him is new and is different right now. And as he's walking along with his mat, it's the whole new lease on life. He runs into some Jewish men. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who told you you could pick up your bed today? Like, it's the Sabbath day. You know you can't do that. Who told you you could do that? And what does he do? He he saves his own skin. He doesn't want to get in trouble. And so he knows these important people. So he shifts the blame. He throws Jesus under the bus. Verse 11. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your mat and walk. So it's his fault. Let's be clear about that, important Jewish people. It is his fault. Actually, he doesn't even know who it was. It's just that man. Because he so uh, just wanted his life to work again. Okay, so who was it told you to carry your mat? I don't know. And here in this passage, we have an example in the Bible of someone who was healed by Jesus, but has no faith in Jesus. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. And later we see that a few verses later, Jesus returns to him, finds him, verse 15... That man goes and rats Jesus out. He goes and reports him to the authorities. This guy healed me. His name is Jesus. The Jews go under uproar. Look, this guy who's been healed is kind of the worst. Like Jesus has just healed him and made everything better about his life. And he is selling Jesus out. Hardcore. He's really easy to kind of hate in this if we didn't feel sorry for him. Honestly. He's the first person in the Gospel of John to hand Jesus over to people who want to, kill, who want to kill him right after he's been healed. So what's the point? Jesus has done something good for him, but even that did not change his man's heart. He got the very thing he wanted. And still we see that he's full of self-protection and self-love and self-absorption and self-reliance. He's healed. He got what he wants. But he's not healed. He hasn't learned the lesson of suffering. 
To him, Jesus was a genie in a bottle. Rubbed it on this side. Jesus comes out, give him what, gives him what he wants, what he thinks he needs, and then the man disappears, or Jesus disappears, stage left. Friends, the lesson of our suffering is to show us not that we need to alleviate the pain, not that we simply need comfort. It's that we need Jesus. Why does Jesus keep coming up to this man in this passage? He initiates, he comes to him in the first place, he comes back to him, the man sells him out, but Jesus comes back to him. Why does Jesus keep doing this? Why is he pursuing someone who had such great needs? Because that's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. He pursues people with great need. He pursues us in the midst of our struggle, our suffering. Jesus singles this man out and he heals him. And he follows up and he warns him. Verse 14, look at that. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It may sound like Jesus is saying that your suffering is connected to your sins. Clear that you did something wrong earlier in your life and that's why you're suffering. Uh, we're going to look at John 9 later in the semester and we see that's just not true. Our sin is not a one-to-one correlation with suffering. It's not that the nation of Puerto Rico that we can look at and say, oh, it's because they're so terrible, that's why they're getting decimated again. That's not how God works with sin. To be sure, sin is what's wrong in the world, but we cannot look at someone's suffering and say it's because they sinned this sin over here. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, you're well. Go and sin no more, lest nothing worse happens to you. He's saying that if your sin doesn't get healed, it's going to lead to something worse. That if the only thing that gets healed about you is the external, is your body, is your problems, your circumstances, but it never goes deep down, if the healing never goes deep down, then something worse may happen. What is the something worse? We didn't read it, but it's right after this. Jesus goes on to talk about an eternal suffering, the judgment of God. That if the deep healing never happens, there is judgment from God against what? Against your infirmities? No. Against your sin. Against the rebellion against Him. Charles Spurgeon was uh, an amazing Baptist preacher. I say preacher, I usually say pastor, but he would preach to like 10,000 people a week, and I don't know how you pastor those kind of people. So I think he was just a preacher. He was just a really good preacher. 10, 20,000 people without amplification. So there's only 1,000 of you guys. Imagine 10, time, 10 times this room. 100, um, 100 times this many people, and he would just stand down there, and the way this, the, the Metropolitan Baptist Church was constructed, it would just amplify up there. But here's the thing about Spurgeon. In the midst of all of what any pastor would consider to be success, he was well known to have suffered from extreme depression. Really deep depression. He would take months and months off at a time because he would be so low. And then there were other people who hated him. They had other Christians who hated him because of, probably, honestly, they were jealous of him because that's how pastors are. But they hated his theology and they hated things that he was writing and saying. And so he had that on top of his depression, not to mention just life stuff. In the midst of that, he said this, and I put it on the front of your sheet. In the midst of that very real suffering, he said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. How is that possible, Charles Spurgeon? Look, y'all, the only way that you will kiss the waves of your suffering, 
is if you see that the one that they throw you into is the very one who suffered infinitely for you. The only way you'll be able to to look to Jesus in the midst of your suffering and do something other than ask Him to heal your circumstances. The only way you can look at Him and say, show me the deeper stuff, is if you know that the one that you're being thrown into for you, for the sake of your sin and your forgiveness, out of love, He went to the cross and endured the pinnacle of suffering, separation from God. He actually was judged by God. And He was found to be guilty. And God punished him for that. There was a real separation between Jesus, the Son, and God the Father so that you can be brought in to that infinite love. Jesus suffered infinitely so that you can be infinitely loved. A friend of mine tells a story of a guy he knew in college, and I'll finish with this. This guy was in his junior year. He was successful. He was good-looking. He was social. He had friends. He was a leader in RUF at his campus doing Bible studies and all of that. Any of us would look at him and said, man, he is. He's great. He's doing well. And uh, unexplainably, his junior year of college, with a very quick diagnosis, uh, came down with cancer, had cancer. I mean, it had been there for a while. But it's honestly, uh, if you all know Claire Statton, it's not all that unlike her. It just came fast, out of nowhere. Claire is a student here, was a freshman last year, for those of you all who are new. Um, And... So he goes to the hospital and he's receiving treatment. And um, he, he, while he's getting treatment, he had just finished uh, getting chemo one day. He's by himself in his room. And as the treatment finishes, he gets up and he's weak. And he actually falls down on the ground. And there he is on the ground, can't get up. And he realizes in that moment, when he hasn't led a Bible study in months, when he hasn't reached out to anybody on campus, when he hasn't done anything productive for God or good for the kingdom or anything else, he, he's just been sick. He's just been suffering. He realized in that moment that God loved him. And that God didn't love him because of all the good things he'd been doing because he hadn't been doing them. And that friend to this day, that guy to this day, will say that his instance of suffering, that very fall to the ground in the hospital, is what convinced him of God's love for him. The waves did not crush him. They threw him into the hands of the rock of ages. They threw him into the hands of Jesus. And in that place, Jesus said, I love you. I'm for you. I'm going to heal you. So the question for us is, it's a real question. Same real question that was asked to that man. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Friends, the good news, Jesus says at the end of that passage, my father's still working. And so I'm still working. He's the great physician. Let him heal you. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would come and bring the deep medicine. Bring the deep medicine to our souls because that's what we need. We want circumstances, but we need healing. So convince us of that tonight by your Spirit. That we need you, but not just that, that you love us. And you love to heal. You even love to heal our circumstances from time to time. But you love to heal our hearts. And I pray that your spirit would do that now, even as we sing this last song. Amen.